coronavirus is upending our lives and reshaping society. In this podcast, The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, we're hard at work producing new episodes that speak to the current challenges. But we also thought that this was a moment to go back through our archive of more than 100 conversations and bring you some of our favourites. Coronavirus threatens our mental well-being as well as our physical health. The challenge is to use this moment to the fullest, to think more deeply about where our lives are going and how we can live with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. Today, we bring you a conversation with athlete Kurt Fernley on Kokoda, struggles and gratitude. constantly wonder about what it is to be Australian and that track actually taught me if well, I think a fair bit about that um, the idea is that these average blokes decided to sacrifice everything for their neighbour my name's Andrew Lee and welcome to the good life a politics free podcast about living a happy healthy and ethical life in this podcast we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Kurt Fernley is a wheelchair racer with three Paralympic gold medals. He's competed in the last four Paralympics, crawled the 96-kilometre Kokoda Trail, won marathons in New York, London, Chicago, Seoul, Paris and Sydney, and crewed the winning yacht for the Sydney to Hobart. He is, quite simply, one of the toughest humans I've ever met. Uh, he's been a hero of mine for a long time, and it's great to have him on the podcast today. Welcome, Kurt. Thanks for the invite. So, you're, you grew up as the, the youngest of five, ki- five kids in Karkoa. Um, tell me, is that how I pronounce Karkoa? Close, Karkoa. Karkoa. Yeah, a bit harsher, a bit more guttural. Yeah, all right, Karkoa. <laughs> tell me about life in Karkoa. Uh, mate, it's, it's, yeah, I, I feel like I grew up in the 80s, but it's more like a 50s. It was, uh, it was outside, outside toilet. It was um, surrounded by family. Half of Karkoa were direct relatives of 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 me with my grandma had 11 kids and um they all they all had an average of about five kids and we just we were in each other's pockets it was it was a really sheltered beautiful classic way to 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 grow up in regional australia now you were born unable to to walk and so then there you are as a kid in regional Australia and what you describe as kind of 1950s uh, childhood which involved an awful lot of uh, time out in the bush and in the water right yeah the, the, which is which is why I like having a yarn here we're sitting outside watching the getting a bit of breeze which probably doesn't help for the listener but it's my whole life was outside my whole life was um, was crawling around paddocks jumping into rivers, trying to find mischief that was, you know, probably seen as, as something that, that or probably felt by people that it would be something that I wouldn't have been able to be a part of because I, I, I did have a pretty significant um, mobility uh, with a, a, a disability. Um, but every, everyone just adjusted. Everyone just kind of made it the new normal. And my whole town just felt like I was, they kind of demanded for me to be out there demanded me to be a part of everything and and the wheelchair got very little use until I went to school it was just <laughs> crawling around the bush chasing after my siblings trying to prove to them that I could that I could uh, I don't know that I could just I was one of them there's a sort of indignity to to crawling about uh, you know if, if I if I was if I was to crawl here I think I would sort of feel a bit uh, I don't know, ashamed or something. Um, but you must have overcome that very, qu- very quickly. Well, you do what you got to. Yeah, you do what you got to. You know, I found, I found strength and dignity in crawling. I found, and and my family were warned against letting me crawl. Uh, they were, they were told, don't, don't let me out of a wheelchair. Don't. Right. If I do get out of a wheelchair, give me crutches. And I know that he's not going to. Uh, 
I know that he's not going to be able to be as quick as everyone else, but he'll look like everyone else. And and that's that's garbage. It's garbage. <laughs> uh, I'll choose where and when I crawl. And if I feel like I can be a better father, a better brother, a better mm. sibling, a better community member, if I feel like I can be, I, and I, I do, fortunately, I, I, I do have the strength to be able to use my mobility outside of a chair. Um, if I choose where and when I do it, then I find strength in it and I find dignity in it and I I have no issues about how how far you stray away from looking like the normal. Is that where a lot of your mental toughness comes from from that uh, that that childhood? Yeah, a lot of it like a lot of it is built through the day-to-day realities of growing up in the bush as in you know, before you go to when you grow up out there with without the you know, without being able to walk, um, you, you're climbing over barbed wire fences by the time you're three or four, and, <laughs> and you, you, you're falling onto you know you're falling onto grass patches or rocks in rivers. You you you, you learn a physical toughness that I don't think I would have I would have really owned without that upbringing. It was. You know, for me, those bumps and those bruises and those cuts, I, they're a privilege. They were, they were never a burden. They were the privilege because if my family didn't allow me to get those moments, if the, my, my community told me that it was not acceptable for me to crawl after my, my classmates, then I learned that I'm not one of, one of them. I, I learned that... that Everyone else dictates to me what normal is, and that's that's not that's that's not going to happen. So you're a father of uh, of one child now, with another expected along any minute. Any minute, you uh, might hear the phone ring and me be running <laughs> running to the doors. We are eight nine days overdue. So, but yeah, it's exciting. So how how do you think now as a dad about generating that sort of resilience? Because it's one of the things I think a lot about as the, the father of three boys. How do I put them through experiences that don't crush their spirit but that teach them that they're able to, to overcome challenges they thought they were incapable of tackling? Yeah, I, I, I'm proud of how I grew up, as in crawling through those things, but I don't want to see that happen again. There are, there are different challenges out there. It's nice... You know, I like being able to tell my story about a guy in a wheelchair learning to crawl across hills. And but we need to be start talking about other stuff, specifically with wheelchairs. I want to start talking about how do we get the next kid in a wheelchair not wanting to crawl through paddocks, but but you know, crawling into parliament. You know what I mean? Like we need to yeah. talk about being CEOs of organisations. And when I sit down with my with my young bloke, I remind him every day that he's strong and he's kind and he's generous and he's he's. Um, you know, he, he's allowed to have his own tumbles and, fu- and and falls and cuts and bruises and, you know, I think, I think however much I love Harry, however much I don't want him to feel discomfort, um, I will, I'll do him a disservice if I don't allow him that. And, yes. And when I do go back to Carcor, he does get the, he does get the, um, the crawling through, the walking through paddocks, um, me crawling after him. Uh, but he also he's going through this, a school system in Newcastle that's different to me. He will have different challenges. Uh, yes, I went through with twelve kids in my year and or school, and all of them were my family. Where he'll have and he's growing up with social media, which so I just want to make sure that he's he feels he feels safe, he feels loved, he feels like he can um, challenge himself, and that we will be there to to pick him up. But I think he's only. He's nearly four now, and I, I, I think that he understands that you know there's a few bumps and bruises that he's he's allowed to and should and and hopefully will receive. Yes, and your first introduction to uh, to, to sport or to wheelchair sport came through wheelchair basketball, right? Yeah. T- tell me tell me about your, uh, your, your the first time you saw, you saw wheelchair basketball. So I was still it was probably year eight or nine. I was still crawling around playing footy with everyone. Um, I was getting slower, and they were, everyone else was getting bigger. They were all of my peers were starting to become more um, more aware or more yeah probably more aware that I was a bit different, um, and I was. I was becoming more and more aware that that I was less competitive, that I was uh, a lot less able to keep up with them, and um, and then my teacher brought out 
she probably brought out 20 wheelchairs and a wheelchair basketball day that's that's still going to the day to the day in Blaney it's still getting there's no kids in wheelchairs anymore but it's still educating you know Blaney High Bathurst High Orange High uh, they send a team in to Blaney High every year and they play the wheelchair basketball cup but for me the first time that I saw my peers in wheelchairs it's just gives you a level of normality that I hadn't experienced before and that's the the, the beauty of sport and that's the beauty of the Paralympic movement is that we show we show a variation of life and and, and show it in such a way through sport that it, it it shows it in a strong way a normal way and and there's and there's beautiful parts to it you write in your autobiography uh, about the the sense you have that wheelchair races have no barriers when dealing with kids. Uh, that sometimes other athletes can be a bit standoffish, but you know, I think you talk about nunners in particular as being somebody who's so accessible to kids. Uh, our our um, culture is that we look after the next generation because we've had to, a lot of our guys it's it's expensive to buy a wheelchair it's hard to find um it's it's hard to find your way out of um the day-to-day -day struggles of disability a lot of the times for a family that when you run into this culture of sport and disability we just grab hold of them and bring them as close into the family as they can to feel like they know that we're we're there for them and we are there we are their extended family and Nari, Nunnis, uh, he, he looked after me as a young bloke. Louise Savage looked after me. Um, even my major competitors from abroad, Jeff Adams, a Canadian wheelchair racer who is current world champion, would allow me to sleep on his couch for months on it. And, and he basically taught me to beat him. And, and that's, <laughs> that's an and, extraordinary thing. Well, that's hopefully what I'm able to do. Yeah. I think that I'll, if, I've, if I've been a part of the next group coming through and, and, and allowed, played a small part in them, being more successful than I am, then I've been successful at, at, at keeping my sport the way it's been kept for 60 years. And how did you feel when you first saw the Australia Day race on TV? That's the, that's the moment at which you started to, to move beyond, move from basketball to, uh, to, to racing, racing, wasn't it? Well, basketball's a good game, but it's wheelchair racing sport. <laughs> <laughs> I just loved it and I was I was probably 14 when I saw this thing and the streets of Sydney shut down for a wheelchair race and these guys were flying and they yeah. were they were big guys big blokes and when I saw it I just wanted to be a part of it it was it, it, you know one of those moments where it just blows your mind it it it, it opened up this this idea of strength in disability that um, that you know, up until the, up until that period of time, the only other people in wheelchairs that I would see would be people who were sick, and and yeah, disability is not sickness. And when I saw that, disability is natural and strong, and and you can you can you know manipulate that life into being a pretty a pretty fit and powerful one. And those guys those guys were nailing it, and I wanted I wanted to have a crack, I guess. How'd you go on your first race? Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I spent a lot of time at being a pretty average wheelchair racer. Uh, but um, I'm pretty grateful of 10 years of losing before I won because being comfortable with, being comfortable with uh, uh, getting, your, getting your butt handed to you for an extended period of time and I, I got to develop the, um, the drive to become better. And if I would have learnt that I was... Um, successful as a as a kid, then that drive wouldn't be as strong as what it, what it is now. I'm, and I know it takes decades to do anything that's worth doing. And that came from Prem being a pretty pretty average, pretty pretty average athlete for a fair while. So you've done some pretty phenomenal things to your body in uh, in races. Uh, Athens 2004, you passed out after the race. Oh, Athens, the whole race was running on running on empty the at athens was uh the culmination of 12 months of my coach andrew who's coached me since i was 13 and that relationship an honest relationship that i've got with doors and a very uh as in he there's a lot of trust and a lot of uh, um belief in i guess each other because he sets down a, a thing and 
and he believes that I can get there and I just assume that it'll take place if he says that it can't. Um, but he built me that year to be just tough. And 2004, I've been faster in my life, I've been stronger in my life, but in 04 at, at Athens, I was the toughest that I've ever been. And, and that race, I just, you know, I, I, I destroyed myself there. there, was, there that was just brutal. It was a 20K hill in the middle 20K of the marathon. I, mate, I just ripped everything down, everything. And then New York 2006, uh, one of your great races, where you you crashed. Yeah, and it's also it's one of the coolest. I've been able to race for for 20 years now, and for the first 10 years of them, I I was on my own, just wandering around the world with a race chair, turning up at places. And 2006 was when I took my dad across, and you know, dad's. Um, He's a, 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 a labourer out of Karkor and he's, you know, he's travelled to, up at that up until that point, he, he did come to Athens with me for the first time abroad for him, um, the first time out of New South Wales, Queensland, I think. Uh, and then he came across to watch New York and I crashed at about 19k and I was able to throw myself back in and it was covered live on telly and he's sitting at the finish line watching it and he's, uh, he's sat there on the finish line of New York and saw me cross that line in front of, what, 50 million people watch it live. There's 2 million people on the sides of the road. And he's stumbled over to me with, with busted up old knees, bawling. And you'd rarely see your, your dad cry, but just overwhelmed by everything and turned around and receiving these gold medals from Tiffany's and, and, and jumping into limousines, being rushed up and down the streets of New York with, again, with me and two bushies sitting there just thinking, <laughs> what's going on? Spent the day with Lance Armstrong, um, which re reflected <laughs> retrospectively, I guess, has taken on a different meaning but, or a different uh, emotion. But, um, yeah, mate, that day when... I've, I think that day I remember that it was one of the times where everything fell apart, but the immediate response was just, just get up, do it, go yeah. harder back myself and when I fall off the perch and when you do talk about talking about things that you're you want to get across to your kid um, or any young person it's it's being able to believe in yourself when when thing get, things get hard when things get tough and about having that conversation with yourself when mm. your body is exhausted or you're you're stressed or you're going through those challenging moments and 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 really convincing yourself that you're you're worthy of stuff and and that day was a big one things fell apart and, and immediately my body and my mind just backed myself to be able to handle it. And you set a course record that year too. Yeah, I haven't been able to get it since. I haven't, I haven't got <laughs> with the Maybe you need to crash every year. Just to... <laughs> One of those, when you, get, when you get adrenaline and strength and, um, and belief and, um, and they all line up, you just do some pretty good things. So if you can, if you can line up something that's, an emotion that's outside of the norm and, and the adrenaline that's above what you can naturally tap into and you're fit and strong and driven anyway, then then you just you, you rip things apart. So you're back in New York two years later, 2008, and uh, something else goes wrong on the uh, Willis <laughs> Avenue Bridge. Yeah, yeah, literally. Like, it was, it was shit. Oh, it was... <laughs> Maybe we should talk this through for people who who, aren't, who don't run marathons and aren't aware of the, uh, the one of the challenges so that all was, marathoners face. I was leading the marathon. I was leading it from the bridge, from the gun. And, um, you know, you pump your heart rate up. It's straight up a bridge from the start. You pump your heart rate up to maybe 190 in the first mile and just to get a break on the guys. And then you're you're cramping through the belly, first of all. And that's, there's there's natural cramps and then there's then there's trouble. But... I was cramping through the stomach and chest and I just kept on pushing and pushing and pushing and you start to, you go a bit, you go a bit distant on the reality that you're feeling because the pain's pretty high, you're trying to pull yourself out of that moment and with about 9k to go, everything just started cramping again and all of a sudden I just come back to the reality where I'm sitting there buddy and I've, and I've, and I've, and I shit myself, <laughs> and, it's, <laughs> and it's just a horrible thing to 
bloody have done and you've got this constant conflict over that last two k's and you're just thinking how like do i stop do i do i what do you like what do you do at that point in time and, and it is honestly it, there's there's a lot of money on the line and and it's new york and you've you've dreamt about this thing and you push yourself and you believe that you gotta win it and and literally even sitting there I was shitting my pants there was still the head just switched off forget about it do what you come here for and and push the body even further and um that yeah, was a challenge mate and i don't know if it was ha to happen now uh, i don't know whether i would be as single-minded that to push through that sort of stuff and it was yeah it messed with my head for a while it took me it took, took me 10 years to tell people right um, i'm sure they smelt it on the day <laughs> <laughs> but again like what do you do you you if you've got to crawl through shit to do the thing that you absolutely love and you believe that you you you, you need to do almost you've got to do it then you know, I'll do what I've got to do. But as you point out in the autobiography, uh, there's no point sooking and uh, you're not the first marathoner to whom this has happened. No, but... Rob DeCostella, and he kept running. <laughs> <laughs> and I do like to, uh, just whenever it comes up, I do short ball deeks. Um, yeah, but that's it, man. You would know. Your body yeah. your body is in a constant, maybe not crapping yourself, but the, the, your body is in I've a constant... I've had to stop in Portaloos <laughs> on multiple marathons. Your body's in a constant degree of discomfort and it is doing everything it can to make you stop. And that's why I always think that the strength to be able to, to, be able to win marathons, a lot of it comes from your body, a lot. Yeah. But there is, a, there is a mental strength and drive that, that defines the the top of the top of any event now you tune out some pretty extraordinary statistics i mean your uh readout data from rio has your heart rate going to 190 beats a minute and staying there for 90 minutes now your maximum if we take 220 beats a minute subtract your age uh you your heart rate shouldn't be able to go much above 180 and let you and yet you get it to 190 and keep it there for that huge amount of time what are you what are you doing to your body in training to to allow it to push to those almost superhuman levels during 04 we did all of our training at that level so i think that actually changed the way that a lot of wheelchair races um, trained from then as in there were no more slow rolls it was all just really high intensity yeah and even to this day at this track we um, we do I would say 90% of our work is at the really high intensity end and I, uh, I must I naturally hold quite a quite a high heart rate even though my resting is in the 40s I, I, I'm I just naturally I'm I can I can hold quite a high one, but also I feed very well into those high adrenaline moments where my body responds really, really quickly and 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 just deals, just deals with it. Um, so if I if I sit on a start of a training run, my heart rate might be 60, but if you get me to the start of Boston Marathon or the start of uh, Athens or Beijing, my heart rate will be 150 on the start line right. before I've engaged any muscle. Um, but we, we, we constantly make sure that we're not causing, uh, causing damage. My heart's just, it's, it's quite a healthy heart. It's large, it's flexible, it's uh, pliable <laughs> and it, and it does the job when needed. Um, and it's been, uh, trained up using ox oxygen deprivation tanks. You've, uh, you've, you've told me before. Yeah, I did, uh, I did about 12 months on it and then, uh, I grew up out at at Carco, which is near Bathurst, and I, I was having a yarn to Mark Renshaw, who's a, a Tour de France rider, and um, we knew each other for since before he was on the tour, and talking about training, and he was talking about a time that he was on one of those machines, and um, it just made him fall off the bike because the it was just taking its toll on him. And I got a bit concerned after that because I'm tied in a wheelchair, and I'm not going to fall, I'm just going to slump, which yeah. means I won't get... I won't get the mask off me, so I, I got a bit more concerned about training in the um, in the altitude chambers. And um, although my body did respond quite well to them, I think it was probably around when I got Harry that I just thought, you know what, probably yes, probably take a lot more risk out of what I do and just make sure that I I, I still push everything that I can while I'm out there training. But I did lose a couple of those little 
one percenters that were just they're not risks that I'm willing to take. Yes, yes. How often do you vomit in training? Not as much as what I used to. Jeez. Um, uh, Look, you'll, I'll feel nauseous at the end of every session. Because if you're, you're training in the high 180s, it's just the way it is. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, a lot, I'm a lot tougher, actually, than what I was, even like to be able to handle those sessions. I'm a lot more exhausted after the sessions, but I just, like, I'll push myself to a speed, but I won't be vomiting at the moment. I'll be... I'll be I'll be able to physically handle it. I don't know whether I'm tougher or softer, but it's um, at the moment. Thankfully, I'm not spewing too much on the blue. But yeah, this this uh, track, which we call the blue, is um, it's seen some tough sessions in its life. <laughs> so speaking of tough sessions, uh, Kokoda, 2009, uh, you uh, uh, decided that you would crawl a 96-kilometer track. Um, what drew you to it? What was it like? Uh, well, if, firstly, if I would recommend everyone to do it. Uh, I, I constantly wonder about. I constantly wonder about what it is to be Australian, and that track actually taught me, if well, I think, a fair bit about that. Um, the idea is that these average blokes decided to sacrifice everything for their neighbour hmm. and for the ability to be able to choose, have choice in our lives and and um, and the, the conditions that they went through, you can't describe it. You've just got to be there. It, it, it's, I find that place is, it's it's like a, and I'm sure there's plenty of other places that, that Australians have did this, but for me, the, that was just, I don't know, almost somewhat spiritual being there. And I know I want Harry to do it. I know I want this next baby that we're we're able to bring into the country i want i want them to be able to go there and and mm. see it because um it was it was it, it meant a lot to me and i did it uh i did it with all of my family all of his blokes uh it was the first time i'd supported november um you know like we're a big family of blokes and uh growing up in the bush you know open communication's not something that you uh that you just you come across naturally and and I had it around me I had it around me that uh, that it was all right for me to be able to speak about my vulnerabilities that it was all right for me to be able to ask for a hand that it was all right for me to be able to um, look up and and receive and you know, jump on a shoulder and and um, there's a lot of Aussie especially there's a lot of blokes around that that perceive that as just weakness and and it's not, it's just not. Looking and ask for help, being honest to people around you, there's only strength. There's strength to the individual, strength to the family, strength to the workplace, strength to the, to the country. If we can have honest, upfront conversations with each other, hmm. we all benefit from it. And, and I felt like doing that track, if, it kind of highlighted that if a bloke feels like he can be honest to the people around them, if then, then a guy in a wheelchair will think he'd be able to cross Kokoda. And, and that's that, that was pretty much the driving force is, is that trying to get that idea across. The Aussie bloke is not a species known for asking for help, as you say, but uh, but you also put your body through an enormous amount. And uh, th were there any bits of you that weren't scratched to, uh, scratched to shreds by the end of the day? I think yeah. you said it was like being put through a meat grinder. It was punished, punished. Um, I can't describe the... The, the, the easiest part or the hardest part of every day, I guess, was when you stopped crawling because all the aches and cuts and I'd just strip off at the end of the day and people would go, um, I'd be like a gorilla, you know, like people would, people would be looking for fresh cuts to cover and bruises and, um, and mate, I, I lost, like I started, I think 53 kilo and I finished about 46, um, I had done 18 months worth of crawling to get ready for it, to, mm. to get my body uh, beaten up enough to feel like I could make an, an 11 day trek. Um, but it was just, it was brutal, brutal. But I would do that, still the best thing I've ever done. And what was it like to meet 
Papua New Guinean kids with disabilities on the Kokoda Trail? Yeah, see, this blows my mind. Um, where we, I think we're fortunate to be in this country for so many reasons. First, we're, we're just in peace. You know, like how good is how good is that? There's no conflict on our doorstep. Yeah. Um, but then there are just these realities. Two thirds of the world who require a wheelchair, they won't even ever see one. Two thirds. And, and you'd like to sit here and say, all right, well, let's find the money to be able to pay for the wheelchairs. But you give the wheelchairs, and what are they? they they're useless because the setting doesn't allow the, 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 the individual or the family to be able to utilize it. So it's more complex than that. But that was the first time I sat there in a piece of land where these these guys not only beyond the beyond the structure beyond the facilities available to them beyond that they were also just not the automatic instinct wasn't i have disability in my family i have to challenge them and get them outside and 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 get them into education it was protective mm. very protective it was We've got to look after them, and we've got to, you know, we've got to keep them away from the the mud and the and and that hurts just as much because um, you're seeing these kids who have the same potential as me um, be sitting in be sitting in little mud huts and not leaving ever, mm. and people being brought in front of me and being told that they hadn't been taken out of their house before. Communities didn't know there was disability in there been brought in front of me on a wheelbarrow and like drop them and dropping them and um yeah mate you know i've seen it i've seen it across the world it's like this you know like and it's it's a challenge um and you'd like to think well people say oh yeah but you when you get back to australia it means you you know you should be able to accept a few of those knocks no we should be perfect with what our community are able to offer disability and we should be doing what we can to help elsewhere as well mm. um yeah it, it's a it's a it's a challenge to think about and um i hope i hope when i'm done training um i know that when i'm struggling at at times we've been able to play a part in we were working with some some public education schools in um in syria until tanks went through and and demolished the school uh, We've been uh, working with kids with disabilities in Nairobi, in the Rubin Centre, uh, where there's now, started off three kids five years ago, we've now got just shy of 40 kids getting five days education uh, with disabilities. When I'm done racing, hopefully I'll be able to put a bit more energy into stuff like that, and education's the key, mate. you just got to get mm. these kids, you've got to find out a way to set up a structure in the community to set up them, give them access to a school and... Um, and they just need a presence. They need people with disabilities there to see that that is a possibility to them. Yes. For them, and yeah, mate, it's 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 been something that uh, both it, it drives me a bit, but it's also haunts you a bit as well. And you talk about Australia needing to be perfect, but of course we're far from that. Uh, you got back from Kokoda to Brisbane Airport and were told by an airline that uh, they wouldn't let you take your wheelchair up to the uh, the door of the aeroplane. Uh, and so... Well, they said that I wouldn't be able to take my wheelchair past check-in. So they said that I'll have to check my wheelchair in like it's a piece of baggage and my wheelchair is my life. It's not a piece of baggage. It's And people... people give me a bit of a ripping about it then like oh, i have to check in my golf clubs you know like why should you not check in your your wheelchair oh, i have to check in my pram i'll check in my pram i won't check in my, my my legs i won't check in part of me um and it's still happening to the day it's still happening across australia i'm still being contacted by people here last christmas i went to go away with my with my wife and my son and my mum and dad and my flight got cancelled because I was the third wheelchair on the plane um, and supposedly the third wheelchair on the plane and I had to relocate from Newcastle, I had to go down to Sydney and they wouldn't allow me to cancel my wife and boys flights, um, they wouldn't allow me to cancel the mum and dad's so they all got on the flight and um, there wasn't another person in a the wheelchair there, uh, there was a couple of people elderly clicked on 
they were there, they needed assistance, so they counted as the two wheelchair passengers and I was the one that, that had to leave. And that's when we're letting, it's the same with, it's the same with same sex marriage. And I know it's not a political thing that you're doing here, but no, when you definitely. put a, when you put a policy down there that allows for a business to exclude someone, and it is down there that disability can be excluded due to unfair hardship or financial hardship, then, then people will take that option. And they'll take the easy road every day of the week. They just will. And laws will then get in the way of someone like myself being a businessman, or the law will get in the way of me being a dad, yeah. or a brother, or a sister. And if they don't, if, 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 if I don't know whether they, or if, if, if they don't sort this law out for, for, for gay parents, then, and, and, and if they, if they don't get rid of all these bloody loopholes about a cake maker doing this or whatever it is, allowing somebody to knock back a, a, gay, a, a gay parent, then you're going to allow someone to get in the road of another person being a dad or a mum or allowing them to just exist. And it's just, when you do be a part of that, it's brutal. It's just brutal. So I also want to go to that specific moment in Brisbane in 2009. I mean, there's a range of ways of, of forcing change, but you were faced with, a, with, with the only option being to be put in a chair where someone else had to, had to push, you, push you along. Um, you chose to say no to that and instead to, to crawl from the check-in counter to the, to the gate. Um, what made you make that choice? I thought Why was that the right choice? It was pretty naive. Um, it was pretty naive, but I honestly sat there and thought, if I do this, they won't do it again. Yeah. yeah. Which, which proved to be, if I do this, um, and I was, I, was giving the national, I was hosting the National Disability Awards four days after, if I do this and I speak about it at these awards and I try and just get people to understand, then, then they just won't be able to do it again. And it was naive. And, and it didn't work. Um, but that was the, the rationale. And I thought, I'm, I can crawl here. So I can do this. No, uh, not, lots of other people can't. Mm. They just, they won't be able to, because the chair can't be manipulated by anyone except for a passenger who's walking behind you or a staff member who's walking behind you pushing the chair. It's got wheels on it like a shopping trolley and you're strapped into the thing. Um, so you just lose every single degree of independence when you get on it. Yes. Um, yeah. So I thought I can, I can, I can make it. I can do it. So just do it, and 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 you might be able to implement a bit of change. Um, again, it was naive. I get contacted quite const like fairly consistently about people who have been put in these chairs and left while the plane boards and and departs. I have had messages from people who've said they've been left in the chair and and peed themselves because they haven't been able to get a hand to get to the toilet. Um, <sighs> I get I get I get these emails quite a lot and. You know, this this is, it's 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 not over. You know what I mean? Like at some point, at some point we're going to have to. And we're not reinventing the wheel. The mm. US do it quite well. You know, like we've got a Disability Transport Act and a Disability Discrimination Act that looks after the person with disability. It doesn't look after the industry. It looks after the person, and we'll get there. We'll get there at some point. It's just uh, you've got to find the energy to be able to convince a big chunk of the people that laws are worth changing to look after look after someone's well-being and look after the look after a, a fellow Australian so there's laws and then there's also attitudes as well uh, you've uh, you've written about how people think that it's stairs s-t-a-i-r-s that's the problem but actually it's stairs s-t-a-r-e-s uh, in what ways do able-bodied people screw up most often when they're dealing <laughs> with people in disability with disabilities and and what should we what should we do better uh, i don't know mate um look we need we need to just we're we're we're, we're going to go through a really challenging period of time over the next 10 years because the ndis and i know that 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 it, it has its good and it's bad but it's changing a few lives mm. and we're going to get more and more people out out into community and and we've got a it'll be a constant fight people think that it's going to be done in a year it's not done in a year you don't fund you don't solve disability in a moment you you you, you, you 
are going to have to constantly question how far do we want disability to go in our community mm. and how much are we willing to fund that. And, and that's going to be played out every year for the next forever. And, and I think that we need to first, we need to start just seeing more people with disability going through to further education, more to employment and more praise and more, more focus given, not just to the, like I love my Paralympic movement. I think that we are some power, powerful people in there, but uh, we, we need to acknowledge that there's a lot of hard work that's happened to get the person with the disability into the corner shop, to get them to be working on the, on the radio, to get them to, to working in small or large businesses or law or accountancy. We need to recognise and, and, and really start to assist with that process. Employment is key because all we need people to do is hang around disability more and that just won't be a question anymore. Mm. Because mm. when you're hung, hanging around, we need, we, need, we need more inclusive education, not less. We need less segregation, less. We need not to be putting, even if we do have special education units, let get the, let's get them in the mainstream schools. Let's, let's make sure that we, because there's no segregation in life after school. There's just not. Mm. There's no ability for, to, to hide someone for the rest of their life. Um, so we just need people to hang around it more. And, and when they do, they'll realise that it's a pretty, it's a variation of life, but it's a pretty natural form of life. And what disability want more than anything is normality. And normality, I'm guessing, probably isn't when people praise you for opening a door? A praise, I don't do very well at praise at all. I, uh, <laughs> I hate praise. Um, that's one of the things, when I go into a comp, you're constantly just burying yourself. Um, and then I don't do any gigs. I kind of bury, I kind of hide away because the praise I don't find is very, very helpful for that sort of stuff. But no, we don't need praise. We don't need to be told we're inspirational while we're sitting at a set of lights trying to, you know, about to cross a road. It's it's life. We're living, <laughs> and we're all carrying around, we're all carrying around struggles. And you know, it, it, we do live in a bloody beautiful place, and we are. I am incredibly grateful for this life, but we're all going to have to eat shit sandwiches every now and then, you know? And, and just because you, you, you've never experienced disability and, and don't allow it to get into all of your fears. And I think that's what happens. When somebody sees a guy in a wheelchair pushing along, they automatically feel the fear of them being in that wheelchair. Mm. But when you're there, when you're in it, it's not as bad as your fears. It's just not. It's, you, you just make it work. There's a new normal that happens from that moment forward, and and it's the same with kids who are who are intellectually disabled, who are who are autistic, or, or, or who are Down syndrome, or who are missing limbs. They they find a new normal, and that new normal has has a beautiful experience of life, and we just need to get to the point where we accept that we don't we don't automatically throw our fears onto the people that we meet. It's just it's not how it works. And once we meet it and see it more and experience it more. That'll just fall away. How's being a dad changed you? Oh, it's made me more emotional. And uh, it's made me more grateful. Um, I just, I've never cried more in my life than the last three years. I don't know what happens. It's like I now, all of a sudden, three years into having Harry in my life and I'm on a plane blubbering at some movie. And it's just, it's, they don't tell you about that. They don't tell you that, that it, does, it does make you more vulnerable, I guess. Hmm. Has it uh, taken any of your edge off? You said before you don't do the oxygen deprivation, but that's that seems more about just a, a sensible safety move. Uh, do you find that the the single-minded focus that you had pre-Harry uh, is isn't isn't there as much? Honestly, yes, but it's not Harry. It's because I've got joy in my life. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like when you, I've got. I love, I love spending time with Sheridan and Harry more than what I love racing wheelchairs, and that's, you know, I'm happy about that. I, I, and before, when you're when you're 17, 18, 19, I loved that, just raw, brute training, racing, and that was my everything. It's not my everything anymore. But I've got things that I enjoy outside of that. And I'm, but I'm more clinical now. I'm smarter now. I don't do, I don't do the the those really crazy training um, uh, parts but I train a lot wiser hmm. and when I get in a race I am a little bit more ruthless I guess I'm a bit <laughs> I, I uh, 
I, I might stretch the friendship of my uh, my fellow competitors. Um, but you just you're, you're just a different person. But yeah, I'm I'm definitely not that same single-minded thing that I was previously. But thank thank goodness. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about being ruthless with your competitors, I, I love your two th 2009 New York Marathon uh, exchange with Chris Sharboy, <laughs> where oh. you're neck and neck, and you you do that you do that glove punch kilometres from the end. Yeah, um, we ha I had I had uh, here's a bit of it. I love Craig. If I could if I could emulate anyone's career or anyone's uh, way of living, he, he's one of them. He's he's again. He's still fit and active. He's he's probably he'd almost be twenty years my senior. Um, and he he, I was off from the gun, out the door. Krieger held onto the back of me, and I was grinding the pack. And that was went down to just me and him. And he said, "Kurt, just give me a buffer. You're gonna win the race. Just give me a buffer." And um, I don't know why. I just relaxed the attack and. Then all of a sudden, five k's later, he just started just just ripping me apart. <laughs> and the longer it went, the stronger he got. And we got into the park at 35k, and I just went, "Thanks, man. This is like battle. It was just a battle. Just absolute. It was a boxing match. And um, uh, you appreciate those ones. You really do. Uh, you you appreciate just somebody just being a competitor." And, and and just duking it out. And that was one of those ones. Uh, and we shouldn't leave the listener without the end of the story. Well, uh, who wins <laughs> and by how much? Well, so that's oh, this is where I probably was a bit ruthless as well because I led into the final sprint and I'd picked, picked it up and um, then Krieger tried to come around on the right-hand side of me and I just looked up and I thought, I am going to... He's not getting passed on the right. So I put my chair straight to the right-hand barricade <laughs> And I thought, he can't pass me on the right. He's going to have to go back and go through. On the left-hand side, if he wants to pass me, I've set my line. And he didn't. And he just went for that barricade thinking I'd let him. And I just didn't. And um, he had to lift the old front wheel up and go around the right-hand side of the barricade. Luckily, he didn't crash. Um, and I won by about two and a half inches <laughs> and, uh, <it> was, <laughs> but that was one of those races where you just you, you you duke it out you know and like and then you turn around at the end of the race and he just turned around and he gave me a hug um and there's a photo of, of him hugging me um at the end of the the new york marathon and it's the only picture that i have of wheelchair racing in my house because that's the thing. You you're, you can be brutal out there. Um, at the end of the day, you, these guys, they wear different colours, uh, but you've got so much more in common with these blokes than 99% of the world. You've 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 dealt with the same realities just in different places. And you know he 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 is a a truly truly decent bloke. And you know I'm grateful for that race. Struggle ends where the gratitude begins, as they say. Yeah. Yeah, well, you've got to realise how tough you've you've got to have that idea, the, the reality that you you've you, you've went, you've crawled through something to get there. And I, I, I like the idea of struggling. I, I'm attracted to it I, when I see when I see people with a bit of grit, with the uh, with with um, with the desire to do it a bit tough in training. I just I want to be around it. What advice would you give to your teenage self? Nothing, um, nothing. Um, you would be tempted to tell your teenage self to stay away, but you just can't. I'm again. I'm grateful for every every bump and bruise, every wrong path. It's uh, it's brought me here. Uh, and when you're done, again, when you fall off the perch, the tough moments are the ones that you're most grateful for. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Uh, I used to believe in general, I used to believe that every person is good. Um, I now know there's, not, there's, there's some people that aren't good. There are some people that are, that do have, that do have a lack of joy in their, in their heart. And, um, and you've got to not worry about that. 
you're not you've got to allow them to go through their thing and and it's and it's their issue it's not yours um, but in general I used to just think that the world was just full of bloody good people and it is by far it outnumbers the alternative by far but there are just people out there that they won't feel that joy or love or they just they won't mm. but don't take that on you leave leave that to them when are you most happy when I'm around family, I love it. I just, uh, beyond, not just my immediate family, and you know, I do appreciate, especially when you spend life on the road, I do love being around my immediate family, but mum and my dad and my uncles and my aunties, I love feeling as if I'm part of a tribe and um, yeah, it's, I am I am a, a pig in crap, mate, when I'm there, I love it. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? I tell myself every day that I can handle whatever it is. So I will have that conversation. If it's a hard training session, if it's a stressful period of life, um, if there's things falling apart with family, friends, then I just remind myself that I'm, I, I, can, I can get through it and I'm somebody who needs to hear it. And I need to hear it from myself. And I, 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 I take that active step and it just makes life a little bit, a little bit easier. Do you have any guilty pleasures? I love chocolate, just love it. <laughs> I love chocolate and a couple of salt Duck. and vinegar chips. Um, no, not dark chocolate. I love white chocolate, which is the worst for you. Um, That's it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a lot more um, synthetic than mm. the old milk chocolate. Um, and I would say, if if I was having a cheat day of of Tucker, it would be um, white chocolate or top deck chocolate. It would be a uh, salt and vinegar chips and red wine. I love a red wine. <laughs> uh, I convince myself if the guys can drink red wine on the Tour de France, it's got to have some redeeming quality, but I'm kidding myself. It's, <laughs> it's just a guilty pleasure. And finally, Kurt, which uh, person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Oh. Shaping and you know, living an ethical life. Um, my grandma. I only knew her till she was she was four, uh, till I was four. Sorry. Um, but all I have is I just I felt just love from her constantly, and it's the same. I guess that that grandma is a as a pretty pretty big representation of my mum and dad. They just you know they genuinely want good for people. Kurt Friendly, thanks so much for being on the Good Life podcast today. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.